1: Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast and a very special one it is because we're talking today about the Australian Energy Market Operators' latest integrated system plan, at least the draft version for 2022 and quite a game changer it is. Um, my name is Giles Parkinson, I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is David Leach from ITK Services. David, how are you? I'm well, Thanks. Oh, excellent. And also joining us is um, from AEMO, Alex Wonhass. Um, um, uh, Alex, um, you've been um, shepherding through the uh, ISP as your oh, – look, you've changed titles a couple of times, Alex, but I think you're a head of engineering systems or head of system design. What exactly is it? <laughs> well,
2: firstly, hi, Giles, and I'm glad I'm being a moving target. I'm currently the EGM for system design at AEMO.
1: I was very close. Thanks for joining us once again, Alex. Great to have you back on the forecast. And also joining us is the Head of Forecasting, Nicola Falcon. Thanks for joining um, the Energy Insiders podcast for the first time.
3: Thank you for inviting me. It's great to be here. So
1: the ISP um, has been, uh, well, the draft ISP has been released. It's quite a uh, significant document. It um, focuses mostly on the step change scenario. Now, if we go back to two years ago, the 2020 ISP had a central scenario and various other ones, including step change, which is a bit of an outlier, talking about a decarbonised grid by the early 2040s. That is now considered the most likely scenario or the core scenario and quite a radical change in Australia's grid it forecasts. Um, A bunch of assumptions here, which will go into... um, in, in detail in the forecast, about a, um, particularly about the accelerated departure of many coal plants, possibly three times as many coal closures by 2030 as had originally been forecast. And going with that is the need to plan transmission to get enough variable renewables into the mix and also significant amounts of storage and dispatchable capacity. Alex, um, I thought I was going to do a really good summary. I don't think it's been quite as good as I expected. Can you just outline, I'll, I'll just ask you both just to sort of outline uh, for each of you what are the most significant parts of these ISP, and then I think we'll just go over, over to questions. Alex, you first. That,
2: sound, that sounds like a great approach, Giles, and, and thank you again for having us around to talk about the ISP, which we are so passionate about. But before talking about all of the technical things that we're doing in the ISP, can I actually also say a huge thank you to all of the people from across the industry who have participated in this process to date. So we had over 200 people already actively participating. We received 120 submissions. We held 25 webinars. And as you said, this is the draft ISP. So what we're really keen to hear is what is the feedback that Uh, people have. How can we make this better so that in the middle of uh, next year, we'll we'll publish an even better document in form of the final ISP. Um, The second point I wanted to make is, as you have said, one of the, pun intended, big changes of this ISP compared to the last ISP is actually that the step change scenario is now our new central scenario and again this has been influenced by the feedback that we have received from our stakeholders who who said um basically half of them said that step change is they, cons- they consider is the most likely scenario and um there's still 17% who consider that the hydrogen superpower scenario uh, is the is the most likely and then um we we only in quotes had 29% um saying that the progressive change scenario and only 4%, which is really one in 20 people, saying that the slow change scenario is is the most likely. So we are seeing a real shift towards this acceleration that we have experienced over the years. And I think what that means for us in the energy market, we need to really put our skates on and we need to build the system that Australia needs in the future. And that's an enormous task. Um, So, in this step change scenario, we are by 2050, we are expecting to see a doubling of the electricity consumed from the grid. And that is because we are seeing a huge electrification of our economy. So, um, not only the traditional electricity is being used, but we are also seeing electrification of transport, of heating, of cooking, of industrial processes. Now, to achieve that, we need a enormous investment into new utility-scale wind and solar generation, about nine times what we currently have, sort of from 15 gigawatts to about 140 gigawatts. And we need about four times the um, currently installed distributed PV capacity. And most importantly, we need to ensure that power is available if and when consumers want it, um, so we also need to treble the firming capacity. That is a huge task, and to enable all of that, um, we'll need more transmission because there will be no transition without uh, transmission, um, but I'm sure we'll talk about this later.
4: Um, Nicola, uh, what, what was the most interesting thing to you in, in, in this forecasting process?
3: Yeah, well, well, Alex has just outlined some numbers, but I think it's really bringing those numbers home to say what does that actually mean for us as an industry, but also for, you know, the, the mums and dads and communities and, uh, you know, everyone that we need to engage with. So, you know, Alex rattled off some numbers on renewable generation, for example, from 15 gigawatts today to over 140 gigawatts by 2050. But let's just stop and think about what that actually means for a minute. By 2030, we would need to triple the amount of renewable generation that we've got on the system today. And that means that the the record rates of of connection of renewable generation that we've seen in the last year or so is going to have to continue and increase um, almost immediately to be able to achieve that. And then we're going to need to start ramping up our supply chain uh, to be able to uh, deal with not only that, but then a doubling the decade later and a doubling the decade later. So when you actually start putting it into perspective like that, I think it it's really does bring home just how much we need to move and, to Alex's point, put our skates on. And it's not just about, you know, what we need to do in terms of connecting up that renewable generation, but really thinking about what that means for communities. How are we going to engage on all of that? How do we get this, this social licence to do that? Um, and how do we bring um, the opportunities that they might be able to realise to life?
4: I think our social licence is going to be an incredibly important topic and I, I we'll certainly talk some more about that. But I know that in the mainstream media and we, you talked about the person in the street and the one thing everyone's want to know when they hear all these big investment sums uh, is what does it mean for their electricity bills? Uh, 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 there's a lot of avoided fuel cost, but uh, if we go with the uh, step change scenario, what would you say about the likely course of electricity prices for both big and small pe- uh, business and people?
3: We haven't done, um, and, and it's not really the, the role of the ISP to project forecast of prices, but what I can say is that we know that there is a, Efficient way to deliver all of this, and an inefficient way to de- deliver all of this. And if we can get the transmission, the storage, the renewable generation in place to enable this development, then it's definitely going to be the lowest cost way for uh, consumers to achieve a, 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 a re- emission reduction in the name.
2: And just just to build on that, Nicola. So as part of the regulatory prescribed analysis that we need to do in this is we actually looked at what are the net market benefits with the optimal transmission build and with the optimal um, generation and and storage build. And then we compared it to a case where we're not building any uh, transmission. And the, the difference is quite staggering. So the difference between those two scenarios is $29 billion. And Effectively, that means for every dollar invested into transmission infrastructure, we are getting about 3.5 times that value back to all of the participants in the electricity market. I think as we care about the cost of electricity going forward, um, I think that sounds to me like a real
1: no-brainer
2: investment. Mm
1: And the, is that the significance of actually having the step scenario, step change scenario, as the core, of the central scenario? Because it now means that when the regulators are making decisions on these transmission investments, and and governments and other people are making decisions, they've got this in mind, and that is the basis of their calculations. Because I know that there's been some discussion. I mean, some projects have looked like they've been delayed because it's not necessarily the net market benefits, not necessarily very visible under the old central scenario. Um, is it true to say then that under the step change scenario, that's actually important because it kind of shifts the economic calculations.
3: I mean, it definitely shifts the economic calculations, but I think the other thing that becomes really, really clear when you start looking at you know a realistic scenario where the future might go is that all of this transmission investment is is needed, um, and it's just a matter of, of timing and when. So, you know, there, there's very, very little difference between. Uh, one transmission plan and another, really in terms of those $29 billion of, of uh, net market benefits for consumers, we need all of that transmission and we need it pretty quickly. So I think that's the other thing it really draws out is it, it removes the discussion about whether this transmission is good or bad for consumers, whether it's needed at all. And it, it really just puts the focus on uh, getting things done. Mm.
4: When we, uh, I, the other thing I'd like to talk about in a little bit is the integration of behind the meter, which gets a fantastic boost in this step change scenario. And, um, but just staying with social licence for, for a minute, which is an incredibly important topic. I mean, I just saw in the Hume link one of the transmission projects today, that there's up to a billion dollars of biodiversity costs. And there's, uh, even within the renewable energy industry, a lot of debate about the merits of transmission and social licence well, um, I guess it's a difficult, not something engineers and market forecasters generally worry about so much. But uh, I guess my question to you is, do you have any ideas about how to build social license? How to, uh, how to get the community and the nation to agree that this is the way forward, if, if, even if 60 or 70 percent of people think it's the most likely outcome?
2: D- David, I think that's a really, really important topic. When I think about what are the potentially biggest barriers to the transition of our energy system, I don't actually think it's you know the the technology or the cost of renewables or whatever people are talking about. It is actually the social license of of building the system of the future. And transmission is one of the key elements, but let's also remember not the only element that requires social license. So big you know pumped storage projects require social license, and we even need social license to run distributed PV effectively. But let's take transmission as an example. Um, Without good engagement with the community, it will be very, very difficult and potentially impossible to actually build the 10,000 kilometers of new transmission infrastructure that we need. That engagement needs to start early and that engagement needs to be very... um, sensitive and we need to to carefully design in detail how we do this transmission infrastructure and there are actually some lessons learned here from also the, the current framework that we're having the current framework focuses a lot on you know the economic benefits test and, and actually quite explicitly include excludes some of the sort of community impacts as, as factors but I think is in particular with the early works declarations that we're making for some of the projects, we actually hope that this allows the respective network service providers to start working with the communities early and to get to have sufficient time to explain what these projects are doing, to design them sensitively, so that, you know, in the end, we can find a workable compromise um, for delivering this nation critical infrastructure.
1: I'm fascinated by the fact that the UMO um, um, the forecast under the step change scenario is for 79% renewables by 2030. Now um, that's um, well beyond what the coalition um, modelling assumptions for their sort of climate plan, I think that's about 69%, but it's actually lower than say Labor's, which is assuming an 82% share so, but look, it's not that much different. Um, given some of the delays that we've seen in the last say 18 months and two years both in connection and financing approval for new projects and things like that, I'm I guess a lot of it's kind of been caused by the lack of transmission infrastructure. How confident are you that we can actually roll out the significant amounts? I mean, Nicola talked before about you know we need a threefold increase in um, wind and solar over the next decade, um, or less than that actually, to get to the twenty thirty target.
2: Look, it's going to be a stretch, but there is there is no debate about it. Um, but I think the only way we can achieve this is by working together across the whole of the industry to address all of the challenges that are in our way and, and solve the problems. I mean, you mentioned connections as, as one example. and I uh, just wanted to make a big shout out to the industry and also the Clean Energy Council, who over the course of um, the last year or so actually worked on developing the connections reform initiative that looks at what are the different things that we need to change in the way we are currently connecting generators to make this process simpler and, most importantly, more predictable? Because we need that streamlined process to connect the amount of, of renewables to it. So there, there are many, many different, different things that we need to do. Um, we just need to get on and, frankly, do them and work through that problem, by problem. It, it's
1: interesting.
3: And I think that's also... No, you go. No, you go. Sorry, I was just going to add that, um, you know, that, that's also one of the roles that the ISP can play is to be able to actually step out what might be needed in the next, uh, you know, 10 years or so, so the industry can start planning for it. You know, in the absence of sort of a plan or a vision, it's, it's very, very difficult to know what is the, what is the target we, we're trying to achieve and just how quickly we need to get there.
2: Yeah, and just... Can I just build on what Nicola said? Sorry to jump in there, Giles, but I think we need to build the capacity also of the industry to deliver all of this infrastructure. We we, we actually at the moment. That's right. There's
4: not many transmission experts out there, are there? Yeah, They're that's. That... I mean, not many. Not the many. Not enough engineers to build the transmission. Not you know, so, so many uh, skills needed.
2: That's exactly right, David. And and I think this is, by the way, not just transmission. It actually applies to all of. Um, people working in infrastructure, actually Infrastructure Australia has done a report recently that looked at the whole plethora of infrastructure that we need to deliver across the country and identified unsurprisingly, we we actually don't have the capacity across the industry to do that. So um, as Nicola said, what we are trying to do is, is we're trying to provide a vision for the future and hopefully that gives people the confidence to actually build the capacity so we can deliver
0: it.
1: One of the headline conclusions or um, sort of assumptions in the step change scenario is the threefold acceleration in coal closures so rather than the five gigawatts of coal closures by 2030 previously assumed you're suggesting that could actually be 14 gigawatts and you're also suggesting by 2032 all the brown coal generators could be closed in Victoria. Now I know that Luoyang A think that they're going to be open until 2048 or something, or at least that's their official view, even though they probably um, don't actually believe that. what's causing you to update, um, um, to make those assumptions?
3: Well, it's a couple of things, and I'm, I would like to first just emphasise that this is just a modelled outcome, and, and we acknowledge that there are a lot of decisions uh, and, and considerations that get um come into play when, when deciding as to closing a plant or not. So, you know, we're not uh, pretending to have a crystal ball on, on some of the operations and everything, but we're just seeing that with the amount of renewable generation that will need to come into the system, there's going to be continued pressure on electricity prices, particularly during the day, and requiring more, um, I guess, variability in operation across a day and coal plant find that difficult to operate very, very flexibly. So you know, they have to make decisions. Do they stay on uh, and deal with quite low electricity prices at certain times uh, to make sure that they're available when they need to uh, at, at higher price times? Do they shut down and then potentially miss it? It's going to become a far more challenging environment for them to operate in. And so our modelling is, is Uh, Identifying that there is potential definitely for a lot more closures uh, given all of those challenges that the qualified generation is going to face in the next decade. But I do just want to stress it's a modelled outcome, uh, and each company is obviously going to be making their decisions based on a number of, of factors.
4: It is just a modelled outcome, but I mean, I think it's uh, got a fair claim to be the most authoritative model in uh, in 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 them, and likely to remain so. So it's, uh, I, I wouldn't resile from the fact that your model is going to be taken very seriously, uh, and and that's a wonderful thing. I mean, this is the most exciting vision that I've ever seen, laid out in an official government document, you know, uh, uh, with with detailed modelling to support it. It's incredibly exciting and wonderful. Uh, At the moment, though, if you went out and talked about coal generation or even six months ago, I would have heard all this stuff about min-gen levels and system security and inertia and stuff like that. I mean, do those sort of things, uh, I suppose we should get out of the way that the step change scenario meets the reliability standard uh, despite all the coal generation closing. But how do you think about you know, system services, I call them, virtual inertia and stuff like that in, in the context of the... Uh, coal generation, rotating masses going away? David,
2: that's another great question. And that's building on what we discussed earlier. There is a lot of real technical challenges that we need to solve because the reality is at the moment, these coal plants or gas fire generators provide important services. And we see that, for example, in South Australia, where we need to actually keep some of them on to keep the system stable. I think what we need to work through very, very quickly is finding ways to provide these essential system services in a different way. And I think we're making some really good progress. So, for example, um, we already can provide system strength by using synchronous condensers, but that's a fairly old technology. Um, As we have done as part of the engineering framework, We have actually put out a white paper that looks at what is the potential for using grid forming inverters um, to provide the same system services. And we are very, very excited about the prospect of this technology. And um, ARENA is now putting together a funding round to demonstrate how this technology can operate in the wild. Um, We in AMO really look forward to working closely with industry and ARENA to demonstrate the true and full potential of this technology. And dare I also say, what we have seen through the recent um, uh, tender process that we've run in um, Victoria, um, we're actually seeing those technologies being very, very competitive from a cost point of view, um, which is also important for consumers.
4: Uh, Can I be clear, though, that the amount of storage that you uh, look to in the ISP doesn't explicitly consider uh, the amount of storage grid forming inverters or virtual synchronous machines, which don't actually require a lot of energy, but perhaps a certain amount of power. But that's that's not actually explicitly modeled as a component of the ISP, is it? Uh, that's
2: correct, David. So the uh, at this level, the modeling actually assumes over the next five to 10 years, we will actually solve those challenges. We, we are working very closely with industry again, on identifying what are all of the technical issues that need to be solved. Um, That's actually recently been published through the engineering framework roadmap that maps out in a large amount of detail all of the um, essential things that we need to work through on a technical side.
1: Can I ask about gas generation? Um, we hear a lot of talk about a sort of a gas-fired recovery and the importance of gas in the grid in the future. Uh, the ISP, in um, even the step-change scenario, makes it very clear. Um, it's talking about nine gigawatts of gas. It's making it very clear that the mid-merit, um, sort of what we might sort of call sort of intermediate gas generation, the closest thing to what we used to call base load, probably doesn't have much of a role there because we need gas generation, which is sort of very quick response, fast dispatchable, et cetera, et cetera. Does that already exist in the grid? Or are we actually going to see maybe not more gas generation in the grid, but really just like a, a, a realignment of the portfolio, some of those sort of mid-merit ones going out um, and replaced by these um, these quicker dispatchable generators? Yeah, it, it's a lot of the, the
3: latter. I mean, gas fired generation, some of it is also expected to close in the period as as it gets aged. And uh, a lot of the mid-merit stuff, as it does close, we're seeing um, is likely to be replaced by peaking gas. I know that could be Mm. reconfigured from the CCGTs, and we're not looking at it in that sort of detail. But but the point is that there continues to be a need for peaking generation of some sort to really be able to uh, fill in the the dark still periods that we might experience if we've got a lot of renewable generation and and the wind's just not blowing, or even when mm-hmm. we have very very high demand periods, uh, and it's, it's just not um, from a modelling perspective anyway, it's not economically efficient for us to build that much more storage capacity just to better cover a, a, you know one or two periods in the year that it might be very very high demand. So so. Peaking generation of some sort, whether it's fuelled by natural gas in the future or whether it's fuelled by green hydrogen or some other sort of zero carbon fuel, we see is still playing a really crucial role in, in helping to, to balance the system.
4: Nicola, can I, can I ask while we're talking about the fuel mix, uh, and I guess that always does depend on cost a lot, but I mean, uh, there's a five-fold expansion in rooftop uh, PV, uh, which is you know and rooftops already on 30% of houses so you know i know it doesn't work like this but is it going to be on 150% of houses by the time we finished that's a joke uh and then uh it's also the mix between uh wind and utility solar i saw a report in new south wales that indicated just recently they were looking for a 75% wind 25% utility solar mix but when I look further out in, in, in the forecast that you have here, it's more like a 50-50 mix or something like that. Can you Could you just talk a little bit about that too?
3: Yeah, sure. So the rooftop PV uh, that we're forecasting ends up being more like 65% of detached dwellings having PV systems by 2050. Now, that might not sound like that much more than what we have today with the 30 odd percent that you spoke about but remembering also that over that period of time we're going to get a lot more homes connecting to the grid as population growth and so forth so that's where we get the the five-fold increase from today with 65 percent of homes forecast to have PV and I might add that many of them in the step change scenario that we're looking at are also assumed to have their systems coupled with an energy storage. Now one of the key features of the ISP is the diversity of, of resources that can be embraced by having transmission, uh, sort of connecting our geographic diversity. But obviously solar doesn't have that sort of diversity. So if you end up seeing a lot more solar on homes and, and mums and dads are, are wanting to have uh, PV on their systems and, and so forth, you're going to find that there's less value in having as much large-scale solar in the system. And so what we're seeing with our ISP modelling is that at least in the near term, as you continue to see so much growth in the the household PV, what on the transmission system needs to be developed to complement that and and create that diversity is more wind generation. And tapping into wind generation right across different regions in the NEM as well, so that we can really get that diversity. What we're then finding though is towards the end of the horizon, um, when we are really getting into very high levels of renewable generation, it's then sort of switches again to being a a focus more on solar, uh, because really at that point, what we're looking for is low cost energy. And, you know, solar is a very, very low cost energy source. We need to be able to have enough to be able to meet our winter demand, But then we're probably going to start finding that there is what we call curtailment or some renewable generation that we just, you know, is is excess to need or requirement. And if we've got a lot of solar in the system, it's probably going to be some of the solar during our summer months that we just have more than we need. Can't store it all because there's not really any need to to move it to any other period in the year. But I think that's going to be a key feature of this future that we probably haven't talked a lot about in, in the past and we'll need to think about how to make sure that's incentivized from a market perspective but you know curtailment of renewable generation is, is probably going to be part of an efficient future and we need to start thinking about how that works
4: yeah i'll hand back to Charles. but i've always wondered you know i don't want to be the solar producer being curtailed and getting zero that doesn't my bank's not going to like that but over to you giles <laughs> I'd like to ask about the
1: hydrogen superpower scenario. It's the one scenario that is sort of calibrated to a 1.5 degree outcome, which is, of course, the um, Paris climate goal, and is what many people think that we should be aiming for. It's also the assumption, at least in the hydrogen superpower, of many people coming in talking about sort of hydrogen electrolysers and, and what have you, and there's um, many billions, not so much being bet, but certainly being talked about investing in uh, sort of renewable hydrogen Plants across the grid. That scenario talks about an extraordinarily quick transition. I mean, I think the aema document describes it as monumental. So, what you're talking about is all coal generation leaving the grid by within 10 years. Um, you're talking about pretty close to 100% renewables from about the early 2030s going on. Um, maybe never quite 100% because presumably you've got some of that dispatchable gas generation sitting there just in case for what the Germans call the Dunkelflaut. But Alex, I'd like you to tell us, how should we think about the hydrogen um, superpower scenario? What does it mean for investors? And I guess the big question is, if we are moving at that speed, do we get to keep the lights on? Well, firstly,
2: we will ensure we'll keep the lights on. And I think if we work together as an industry and we frankly implement the things outlined in, for example, the hydrogen superpower scenario, we can keep the lights on. Well, what does it mean for investors? It is going to be a massive investment opportunity, dare I say, for investors. And when you look at the last couple of months in Australia, I think almost every single state has put together a very ambitious hydrogen strategy. And some of the you know, wealthiest people in Australia have made huge commitments to invest their funds towards the establishment of this new industry which you know if it all goes to their expectations could rival our very successful existing um resource and energy export industry so i think it is a huge opportunity for us as a country and coming back to sort of the weighting of our scenarios actually not an insignificant number of our stakeholders think that this might actually going to be happening. But I mean, we have already said the step change scenario is very challenging. So, you know, doing all of this in a very short amount of time will be a true nationally coordinated effort Mm. that is required.
1: Well, the step change scenario going back to the last ISP was considered the out there one. I mean, it's a totally possible <laughs> thing given the state of the, the you know the, the pace of um, technology change and maybe the low cost of electrolyzers and maybe some of these billions actually being produced and invested. I mean, it could be the next time you do an ISP in twenty twenty four, or it might not be you personally, Alex. Um, that could be the central scenario. It, it
2: may very well be, and I I mean, it is a really really good exercise to actually reflect back. What did we think about the energy sector just 10 years ago? I mean, we were thinking, oh, you know, renewables are currently quite expensive, but yes, we hope they're going to be cheap, but can we build all of these things? And boom, today, they are the cheapest form of electricity. We are building renewables at rates we have never anticipated. And we were, you know, frankly surprised by the speed um, with which the industry has developed. So, yeah, that gives me a lot of confidence that, you know, we'll probably be surprised again in the future by how quickly we can evolve and adapt.
4: Mm. I'll I I just, go- just come back to the the, uh, the demand side of things in the step change. You know, one of the exciting things that you're forecasting is that electricity demand is would double under that scenario when of course it's been absolutely flat or even down over the last 10 years cumulatively. Uh, could you just talk a little bit about the Uh, things that the sectors that will drive this uh, potentially potential doubling of demand
3: yeah there's uh, obvious ones that we're all starting to talk about now in the transport sector so your electric vehicles uh, will be part of the demand we're thinking about how we heat homes how we heat businesses and and so forth so a lot, a lot of the gas demand will also be electrified as well as a lot of the heavy industry that currently re- relies on um, gas to, uh, to run their businesses. you know a lot of that will also be electrified in the future. not all of it. Some things just don't work to be electrified, um, but a large proportion of those are uh, industrial processes will
4: and if we were to leave some of them out like industrial you know like i think we all agree that electrification of industry of heat is 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 a harder sector than electric vehicles you know would that change the demand forecast very much
0: well a lot of
3: the, a lot of the increase in demand is from electrification not only of the electric vehicles but of those other processes so so yes it would change the demand um a fair amount and I think the question there needs to be how how do we look at this from a whole of system perspective you know, for Australia? We need to be thinking not only of the electricity sector but all of those other sectors and how they couple together now, whether it be transport, whether it be gas or, or, or something else. I think that's one of the challenges for us all.
4: And would I be right in saying, just before I hand back again, that even within the household sector, despite all the residential uh, behind the meter stuff and the fact that it goes on batteries, despite that uh, and despite because of electrification within the house, that actually the uh, operational supply to, to the residential sector would still eventually increase?
3: Um, I'm, I'm not actually entirely sure about that one, David. I might pass on that and uh, need to have a look at that further.
1: I think we're sort of probably coming to the end of this quest, um, this uh, this podcast. Um, thank you very much, both of you. Before we go, and look, of so notwithstanding, maybe another couple of questions which David has thought of. Alex, I was just wondering, um, you've announced your departure from AEMO. Um, it seems to be a surprising one. I mean, I know you've helped deliver this. You've been key instrumental in delivering this um, draft of the 2022 ISP. You won't be around for the final version. Um, it's such an exciting transition, as you say. Why hop off the train right now?
2: Well, as you have already heard in, in this discussion, uh, Nicola, who will be stepping into my shoes, she is going to be doing an amazing job. And in fact, she has been one of the driving forces of this ISP already. So I think it's actually a great um, opportunity to create space for new talent. And um, rest assured, I remain extremely passionate about the energy sector and its transformation. So after having had a bit of a, Break and a breather. Um, I will be back, as um, to quote a very famous Austrian actor with um, large muscle mass.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Nic- Nicola, what does this mean for you? Congratulations, then, on your um, your your, uh, your 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 future role. Um, what's going to be? I mean, well, I mean, I guess the easy answer to what, what's going to be your priority is actually sort of putting together the final version of the 2022 ISP. In what ways might you be having a different approach?
3: Oh, well, well, first of all, th- thank you very much. And, uh, you know, I, I have to say I'm still very sad to be uh, farewelling Alex from, from our organisation and Aemo. I've uh, very much enjoyed uh, working with him on a lot of the ISP things. But really, my my vision and his are are pretty well aligned. So I'm not intending to do a lot of things differently, uh, certainly in in the role, as I should clarify, it will be an acting position. Um, But really, I hope to be able to just uh, take uh, what Alex has already delivered for us and keep on moving forward with it.
4: I, I only have one uh, final question. I mean, I, I could go on forever, but uh, you know, what's the number single number one thing that has to? What's the if on the critical path? What, what is the most biggest priority now?
2: Let's make it happen. I think we have been talking about this energy transition for such a long time, and we have been analyzing it to death, and we've probably contributed to this. We actually need to make it happen. It's coming at us, and as we have seen with this one faster and faster. So we need to get on with it.
4: And, and But I'd be right, in saying, wouldn't I, that, that sorry, that transmission, I mean, it seems to me the three things you talk about are that transmission, which always takes longer, has to, has to be accelerated further. Uh, we need a plan to close the coal plants. That would make everything a lot easier. Uh, and perhaps then long duration storage would also be on the critical path.
2: Well, that sounds like a great plan to me. Three point plan, David. Maybe you want to do the next ISP.
4: Yeah, I, I want the lights to stay on so it won't be very... <laughs> <laughs> I mean,
1: it's interesting though. I mean, we I, I sort of um, I, I spoke over David then when he was asking the question. Um, you sort of said, you know, we need to make this happen, but who is we? I mean, it is not just AIMO. Who else do you need to get on board this?
2: That is a really, really good point. It's actually everyone in the industry. Everyone has a part to play in this. You know, AIMO has a role in you know doing the plan and keeping the lights on. Um, investors are really important. This, this is a north of $100 billion investment. So, you know, capital markets need to come uh, to the fore. Um, all of the market bodies and governments need to put the right rules and regulations in place to uh, enable us to do these things. You know, uh, people around the kitchen table need to make the right decisions. Um, there's probably a long, long list of people. It, it's not a single silver bullet, but we as a nation need to come together and we as a nation need to deliver this.
3: Yeah, and I might just emphasise at the end of the day, it, it really is about the consumers. So one of the things that we're going to need to work on very hard is to, how how can we provide consumers with confidence in this plan? Because I think really that's going to be a, a critical part of, of it is to help them understand uh, that this is in their best interest. Um, how Speak, do we speaking as an that?
4: energy minister, Speaking as an energy minister, uh, Nicola, I can tell you the way you do that is by telling them lots of jobs and uh, electricity prices will be no higher in real terms than they are today. That's how you do that. And the lights will stay on.
3: Sounds pretty good. (laughs)
1: well look um, Alex Wanhass and Nicola Falcon uh, from AEMA thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast uh, for discussing the ISP the draft ISP for 2022 which I'm sure you can find on the um, AEMA website and also a couple of stories on the Renew Economy website as well so thank you very much and best luck for the future Alex and we look forward to talking with you more in the future Nicola
3: thanks very much both of you enjoyed it thank you that's been great
1: so once again, thank you very much to Alex Walhass and Nicola Falcon for joining us, David. Look, the ISP I've got to say is, um, as we've kind of alluded to in the uh, in, in the chat um, with those two, is, is a pretty impressive document. I think the step change is really quite significant because it's going to cause government regulators and um, developers and investors to think uh, or to, to rethink the game and we could go even further. I mean, um, last uh, last ISP, um, step change was the outlier. This, this time, they've got hydrogen superpower, the outlier. You never know, in a couple of
4: ISPs time. Well, it's, it's like a bomb going off. And uh, before the election, too, with 14 gigawatts of coal uh, slated for closure in their modelling. However, it's only uh, a, a plan, as Nicola said. And, you know, the question is what actual, uh, there's no mandate to action it as a plan other than for, for the transmission.
1: Yes, but, but I guess what it does is that, um, yes, but but, but it, it does sort of set the scenario and it's just a reminder um, of the pace of the transit, transition that's actually happening here. And a reminder that we just can't blithely just go along and just sort of say, oh, well, well things will happen. We actually do have to put in a pan, plan in place. I, I think it's a fantastic plan,
4: Giles. I, yes. I mean, I think It's an absolute, uh, it's a bomb, you know, like it's a fantastic plan and wonderful uh, wonderful uh, thing. But look, we should let our readers all digest it and we'll talk about it some more. There's a few other things in the in minute or two we've got left to our to ourselves. What, what else should we talk about?
1: Well, look, um, as you forecast last week, there was the New South Wales um, uh, infrastructure plan. More information of that. AEMO, um, I can't remember the subsidiary it's called, but it's basically sort of managing the rollout of this and it gave the timetable for all the auctions that will happen over the next nine years to replace the coal- five power stations that will close in New South Wales and roughly operating between about 500 megawatts and one and a half gigawatts a year David um did you make any have any observations to make about
4: that plan no just the steady pace of it and uh, the organized rollout it's off to a slow start but I mean in the end that that may uh, produce a good outcome a bit like 50 the old 50 over cricket style isn't it really Giles? we won't <laughs> talk about that <laughs> Certainly not.
1: Um, and look, but look, things are happening elsewhere. We've got the formal opening of the um, of the Victorian Big Battery in um, twelve
4: months from from contract to opening. Uh, absolutely, yeah, you, know, you can say what well, you well, like. Go well,
1: quite on. impressive. I mean, getting, you know, considering they had the sort of setback with the fire as well, so they've still got it out on time. So that's quite impressive.
4: I mean, um, and, and it's not just Tesla. You've got to give Neo and a, a tick. They are great operators in getting things up and done.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And look, there's a few other things happening. Um, one of the things not mentioned in the ISP is offshore wind, but there's some people getting fairly serious about that. Um, Elinta, as revealed in this very podcast a couple of months ago by Jeff Dimmery, um, uh, planning a one gigawatt wind farm, and they've now now told us or announced to the world that it will be located near Portland and ostensibly to supply the Portland smelter with 100% electricity by, say, 2028 or 2030. So let's remember that the Boyne Island smelter and the Tamago smelter, both owned by Rio Tinto, um, at least majority owned um, are also getting 100% renewables so they are the biggest consumers of electricity in Australia individually and possibly collectively. and um, they're all getting renewables by the end of the decade, David.
4: Uh, yes, the ISP explicitly says it doesn't model any offshore wind because the costs uh, aren't there and, the, the, you know, the benefit-to-cost ratio isn't right. So it's interesting that these projects are, are proceeding nevertheless. Uh, it's well, just, they're
1: very much at the concept stage, aren't they? But um, there's still interesting attention. A bit like some of the hydrogen electrolyser um, uh, announcements, I mean, we've got sort of more rolling out every day. Um, one that sort of struck me was um, one with Neostar and... Uh, Tra- Trafaluga, uh, Trafaluga, or well, it's, anyway, it's majority shareholder of the Swiss-based trading house in Port Piri, which sounds interesting. And there's also a PPA, well, no, not a PPA, it's more of an MOU signed to the 600 megawatt solar farm by the project that you consider to be the most serious at this stage, which is the um, Stanwall Project up in Gladstone.
4: Yes, uh, I like the Stanwall Project uh, because it's close to Japan. It's clearly got lots of resources, although maybe not so much water. That's an issue for them. Uh, but it's the, really that they've got customers, Iwatani, uh, which is the biggest hydrogen user in Japan, uh, plus uh, Kawasaki, uh, plus Kansai Electric Power Company and Marabini, and they've got in the consortium the, uh, um, the people building the first uh, ship hydrogen ship. So you know, it's the strength of that consortium and the fact that you can see where the offtake's going if the, if the cost uh, things are met. Uh, that makes me feel really good about that hydrogen project relative to all the others, including... The, the, the many millions of projects that, uh, that Twiggy Forest is so busy actually announcing one project after another one, I, I wonder if he will ever have any time to build any of them.
1: We'll certainly find out, but um, you're right. Um, And that's a string of announcements, but um, let's see what happens there. David, look, I think that's a bit of a wrap. I think our focus should be on the ISP, and I think we should let that speak for itself and the AMO people without any further ado. So thanks to you. Thanks once again to Alex and Nicola for joining us today. Thanks, of course, to our sponsors, Evergen and Pylon. Thanks to everyone listening out there. We've got a couple more episodes to go before the end of this rather extraordinary and in some ways exhausting but exciting year. Um, at least in the electricity industry. And um, I think that's about a wrap for now. Thank you very much.
0: Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen